Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am your lead moderator for the group discussion today. My name is Jehan Marku, and I am joined as usual by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. <laughs> and also, I'd like to introduce Dr. Sarah Jane War, the neuroscientist and a prolific drug abuse researcher who is also a founding member of this podcast. Welcome back. Hey, everybody. I've missed you all. Awesome. Um, introducing also Dr. Amber Wise joining us, a brilliant analytical chemist and science director of Medicine Creek Analytics, which works at um, Native American reservations. Right, Amber? Yes. Good morning, everybody. Excellent. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. First up, we're going to play a game and have some fun with psychedelics and antidepressants, but of course, not too much fun because this game is going to test your knowledge about side effects and other references. So I'll read a clue such as a side effect or maybe a quote or a title of a book. And you, the panelists, get to suss out if it's in reference to a psychedelic or antidepressant. For our second segment, we'll discuss an article about so-called bad patents um, in the psychedelic space. We'll discuss how I stopped worrying and learned to love patents for polymorphic psilocybin. And third, we'll discuss a peer-reviewed article attempting to differentiate between psilocybin and LSD. It is entitled Direct Comparison of the Acute Effects of Lysergic Acid Diethylamide and Psilocybin in a Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Study in Healthy Subjects, published in Nature with the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology. Okay, we'll be right back in 30 seconds with today's game. And we're back. And to start things off, we have a little game that we are calling in reference to what? Uh, and the theme today is psychedelics or antidepressants. So in this game, I'll read clues about a drug and you'll have to guess, is it in reference to a psychedelic or an antidepressant? But before we get started, to started, let's, um, let's cover some fundamentals. So uh, Sarah, I was hoping you could please talk to us about antidepressants, um, just kind of from a scientific perspective, maybe we can go over SSRIs for the group or the listener, which I know is just one type of antidepressant. Sure. Yeah. So SSRIs are one of our newest classes of antidepressants, even though uh, by new, I mean, they've been around now for several decades. They're one of the commonly, most commonly prescribed medications in the United States. SSRI stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And basically, these drugs allow our brains to have more serotonin hanging around uh, for neurons to access. And this seems to be, for some people, a viable treatment for depression and other mood disorders. Interesting. Thank you, Sarah. All right, Amber. Um, well, we, we know a little bit more about antidepressants. What about psychedelics? Um, what is a psychedelic? Uh, you know, Maybe what is psilocybin, for example? Yeah, so psychedelics are a large bucket um, that includes a number of different compounds that act on different pathways, but generally the term refers to something that alters your physical or mental uh, perception of reality. 
And psilocybin in particular is naturally occurring molecule made by a large number of different fungi species. Um, and it is actually the prodrug to psilocin. Uh, psilocin is the molecule that makes the psychoactive effects in your body, which is the dephosphorylated version of psilocybin. Oh, beautiful and far out. Thank you, Amber. Nigam, um, so we've covered uh, psychedelics. We've covered uh, a little bit about antidepressants. Um, any factoids you'd like to share with the class? I, I like it when Amber does that chemistry talk. That's cool. Um, so it's so it's all too rare in the space. So anyways, um, I wanted to just mention one thing that I think folks don't talk about a lot. We hear about a lot of the positive psych- psychedelics, and, and I agree there are a lot of potential positives, but there's some uh, potential risks that folks should be aware of as well. Uh, for example, there is uh, a documented condition hallucinogen persistent perception disorder um, or colloquially known as flashbacks that um, can affect some people and and are also cited in modern you know research in the space so uh just just kind of highlighting that that there's uh, just like everything in life there's there's a pro and and there's a con and and the one I just mentioned is is just one that, that people reference often excellent uh you know, I think HPDD is a fascinating condition. And I think, you know, the more we could learn about that, I think the more we'd learn about the human brain. Well, now on to the game. So this is supposed to be kind of a, you know, a rapid fire game. We're going to go through, I'm going to read a statement, call of one of you with an answer. I will also, um, snappy comments are encouraged. Uh, so these statements could be facts, quotes, pop culture references, book titles, et cetera. Three short rounds worth progressively more points. And then at the end, I'll have a final challenge where you could bet it all or as much or as little points as you want to win. What will you win? Great question. The prize today is, of course, the title of champion of the known universe, which comes with knowing you helped expand scientific thought for the listener of today's podcast. So here we go with in reference to psychedelics or antidepressants. All right. Your brain's humming. Good. All right. Nigam, I'm going to go to you first. First question to you. The book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, is about what type of drug? A psychedelic or antidepressant? It's worth one point. Just generally, it seems like it has to be a pharmaceutical. So I'm going to say antidepressant. All right. Good job there. Uh, Sarah, did, did I win? Did I get the point? Yeah, you what? got the point. Okay, cool. Um, awesome. <laughs> was, was the sound, the dinging sound of you uh, getting it right? Was that not loud enough? <laughs> Oh, th- yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I must have I must missed that. <laughs> uh, all right, Sarah. Uh, next one going to you. Uh, the main targets of these drugs is generally regarded as 5-HT2A receptors. I am going to go psychedelics. And you are correct. Excellent. All right. Round one is off to a start. Amber, for one point, weight gain and sleep disturbances are common adverse effects of what? I am going to go with antidepressants. Excellent. Based on what I've heard from other people. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. All right. Three-way tie heading into round two. Round two is going to be worth two points a question, slightly more difficult. And um, I've taken the liberties of some syntactical engineering here to try and make it a little more difficult. So... Nigam, we'll start with you for two points. 
Um, this quote, is it in reference to psychedelics or antidepressants? The public is often well-versed in the potential harms of these drugs, but much of this knowledge is from cases involving patients who used illicit substances in unsupervised non-medical context. So once again, the public is often well-versed in the potential harms of these drugs, but much of this knowledge is from cases involving patients who use illicit substances in unsupervised non-medical context. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer in the game, but I'm going to provide some commentary too. So I'm pretty sure they're talking about psychedelics. And I think my commentary is that often what we see is historically for things like cannabis, psychedelics, uh, what's been publicized by the, you know, prohibition machine is the negative aspects of those things, right? Be, Be it true or be it false. And then yet on the pharmaceutical side, there's negative aspects and those are more suppressed. They go in the fine print and they're prescribed. And so anyways, that's the backup for my thought. I think the answer is psychedelics. And that means two points for you, Nick. I'm squeaking ahead with the lead. All right, Sarah, this next one's for you. Um, is this quote from Christopher Hitchens in reference to a psychedelic or antidepressant drug? There may be successful methods for overcoming the blues, But for me, they cannot include a drug that says, fool yourself into happiness while pretending not to do so. I should actually want my mind to be strong enough to circumvent such a trick. Again, that quote is, there may be successful methods for overcoming the blues, but for me, they cannot include a drug that says, fool yourself into happiness while pretending not to do so. I should actually want my mind to be strong enough to circumvent such a trick. Um, so was Christopher oh. Hitchens making a reference to antidepressants or psychedelics? Yes. <laughs> oh, man alive. Um, yeah, I know. It's all sausage to me at this point, right? It sounds like both. I'm going to go. Who's Christopher Hitchens? Can I? So have he's written, uh, yeah. So he's written like thirty books, a lot about pop culture, some stuff about. Um, I want to. I don't want to say public health, but he has a lot of perspectives related to pop science and uh, culture. All right, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go psychedelics. All right, this is a tough one, worth two whole points, and you just missed it. Oh, I want to give you partial credit because it does. <laughs> it does sound like that. All right, Amber, uh, your chance to tie it up for this round or Nigam walks away with a solid lead before we go into the three-point round. So, Amber, uh, is this statement in reference to psychedelics or antidepressants? The drugs are not thought to cause dependency in part because they don't work if you take them every day. So the statement is the drugs are not thought to cause dependency in part because they don't work if you take them every day. So for two points, is this in reference to psychedelics or antidepressants? I don't even understand the statement. Like, who would be making it? They're saying, they're saying like some, so one of these classes of drugs is ineffectual when you take it the next day again. Right, right. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with antidepressants on this one. All right. I don't have a lot of justification for that. <laughs> no, excellent. All right. So, oh, Amber, so close, but yet so far away. 
no points this round. So this is in reference to this to psychedelics, some of which um, don't work if you take them every day. You just don't have the same effect. And so you actually have to like, some people say three days, some people say a week, some, you know, you really space it out. Um, but excellent. All right. Right now, Nigam is in a commanding lead with three points, two points ahead of everyone, but it's okay. You can make quick gains in the this round, the three-point round coming up. Round three. All right. Um, Nigam, we're going to start with you, um, in a, uh, first question again, these getting a little trickier. So this, this one's for you. Is this in reference to a psychedelic or a antidepressant, um, in 2010, based on a population survey, it was estimated that there were over 32 million users of this type of drug in the United States with an average 20% of males, females, age 30 to 34, having used this in their lifetime. So in 2010, based on a population survey, it was estimated that there were over 32 million users of this type of drug in the United States with 20% of males and females age 30 to 34, having used it in their lifetime. I know wow. it's statistics. That's really hard. Um, I know you only have a 50, 50 chance at this one, unless you've read <laughs> every epidemiology paper about psychedelics oh, and antidepressants. Um, hmm. I wish I could get one of, uh, I, I wish I had Amber's question from last time. I knew the answer to that one. Um, <laughs> you even tried to give it to her. I tried to tell her. I, 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 I was wanted like to say that's like cheating. She didn't, she didn't, like, she didn't it's want like, my... it's, it's like on Wheel of Fortune when someone else is like, <laughs> buy a vowel. <laughs> she, didn't want, she didn't want my help. Um, you could have been fine. trying to throw her off. Who knows? That's All right. true. That's so, true. um, you know, when you talk about it, you know, so, so let's just, re let's break it up just a little bit. Right. So average, you know, about 20% of males, females, age 30, 34 report having used this drug in their lifetime. Um, uh, I, population survey says there's 32 million users. I think it's, uh, antidepressants. All right. Now, while it does sound like an antidepressant statistic, it is actually a psychedelic oh, statistic. Um, very surprising one uh, that uh, from uh, from a recent review or about the prevalence of psychedelic use in the population of the United States. That's All pretty right. high. That's encouraging. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're we're almost to the revolution. Yeah. Um, All right, uh, Sarah. So for the next uh, round three, very difficult question. Uh, similar vein. Is this in reference to a psychedelic or an antidepressant drug? During 2015 to 2018, 13.2% of adults reporting having used this type of drug in the past 30 days. This is according to the CDC. Um, during 2015 to 2018%, 13.2% of adults reported having used this type of drug in the past 30 days. I'm going um, antidepressant. All right. So for you, get three points. Yes. Sarah's back in action, squeaking out a lead. All right, Amber. This is, you got you to make this, this layup here or this three-point shot, I guess, technically. So is this in reference to a psychedelic or antidepressant? The Emperor's New Drugs is a book title about what? The Emperor's New Drugs is a book title about what? That's the only context that I give. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's a tough one. Um, 
I was thinking originally this way you were referring to the emperor wears no clothes. Uh, is that the title of the old school? Oh yeah. Yeah. Book? Yeah. That's, that's a, that is the title of that. It's, and there's also the children's book, the emperor's new emperor's new clothes, a, right? Yeah. Oh, I think it's a movie emperor's new something. Yeah. There's a lot of nudity. There's a, yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, I'm going to go with this is a total just 50 50 guess. So uh, I'm going to go with psychedelics on this one. Ooh, you know, maybe that <laughs> question was a little tough, but it is actually surprisingly a book that primarily focused on antidepressants, uh, the emperor's new drugs. Um, unfortunately, all these psychedelic books I could find have the word psychedelic in them. <laughs> all right. So right now, uh, Sarah is in the lead with four points, Nigam with three, Amber with one, but it's not over yet because we have one last lightning round, final HLI statement for in reference to what? And this is a quote from Adam Ant. And I want, uh, first of all, um, it's going to be a quote. So Nigam, how many points are you betting? You're in, you're in second place with three. Sarah, you have four. Amber, you have one point. Everyone's on the board here. Nigam, do you want to bet three points? I'm, I'm two betting points. it all. I'm going betting for it. it all. Yeah. <laughs> Big spender. All right. Sarah, you're in the lead with four points. If, if Nigam gets this right, he'll see, he might squeak out the lead. If uh, you got four, four big ones, you could do two, three, one, no, no points. You could just hold steady. Well, if I risk two points, then Nigam and I could tie, and that would be nice. So I'm going to risk two points. All right. Two points of your big four. All right. Amber, you have one point. Do you want to bet it all? I'm going <laughs> to bet it all. All right. Okay. Here we go. These drugs are very good, but it's a clinical cosh. Really. Sometimes you have to be knocked out just to stop. When you're in that state, all you want to do is just sleep and rest your body and your brain. These drugs are very good. But it's a clinical kosh, really. Sometimes you have to be knocked out just to stop. And when you're in that state, all you want to do is just sleep and rest your body and your brain. Is this is, is this quote from Adamant? Is this in reference to psychedelics or antidepressants? So I know that uh, you know. I'm going to say you know, Nigam, you've been going first, and you've been doing a good job of going first. So. You, you can, uh, we'll reveal your answer now. I would encourage you all to write it down so you can't change it because I can see you all on camera. So should, should I say it? Should I say what it is? Go for it. I'll do the reveal at the end. Oh, gosh. Um, or if you want to, if you need another minute, you can take a knee and I no, can, it's, can go. No, it's cool. I'll guess. I think it's psychedelics. All right. <laughs> Amber's got it written. That's pretty cool. Oh, I'm, I'm not. All right. Uh, we'll go to, go to Sarah. You've been going second this round. Oh, Ooh, she got one for the oh. big antidepressants. Very interesting. Great Points minds game. sometimes yeah. think differently. Interesting. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Amber, Dr. Wise, uh, your guess, please. Uh, is this Adam Ant, a musician? Yes. No, uh, no, I'm going to go. Oh. <laughs> the, the lead paleontologist. <laughs> I don't know. Like, yeah, I think he's a musician. He looked like a musician. He had eyeliner on, I think. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go psychedelics. Psychedelics. <laughs> All right. So, Adamant, 
um, in this interview says, uh, these drugs are very good, but it's a clinical cautionary. Sometimes you have to be knocked out just to stop. When you're in that state, all you want to do is sleep and rest your body and your brain. It may be hard to believe, but he was talking about antidepressants. Surprisingly, um, I found that quote online in an interview he did about something about like sex, drugs, and rock and roll is like the title of it or something like that. And he had this amazing quote in there about antidepressants, which means Sarah is champion of the known universe today. Wow. That is wow. incredible. She, she pulled it out, a squeaker there, six points to take home the gold. Well, wow. I had a lot of fun hosting that game. So... Thank you to my wonderful panelists. We'll be back after a short break with segment two, where we'll discuss psychedelic patents. Hello, I'm Chris Witowski, the co-founder and CEO of Solera Bioscience. If you'd like to learn more about how we're bringing a new era in mindful medicine, please visit solera.com, that's P-S-I-L-E-R-A, or email us at info at solera.com. Thank you. And we're back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss news, business, law, and popular science. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. In this segment, we're going to discuss an article written by uh, a colleague, Lauren Wilson, from Lucid News, entitled, A New Database Seeks to Prevent Bad Psychedelic Patents, with bad in quote marks. So before we get started, just quickly, what's something we all know about patents? So uh, one thing off the bat is I know there's different types. Uh, I would say patents are there to protect ideas and inventions. That sounds good to me, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And patents are um, actually also territorial. And so they only cover a specific jurisdiction or uh, stay within a national border. So there are no such thing as worldwide patents. Interesting. Well, um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about these topics as we dive into the wild world of patents. Um, so to kick things off, um, I'm going to share a quote from Abraham Lincoln, who um, said, uh, before the adoption of the U.S. Constitution, um, any man might instantly use what another had invented so that the inventor had no special advantage from his own invention. The patent system changed this and thereby added fuel of interest to the fire of genius in the discovery and production of new and useful things. You know, group, I'd love to get your thoughts as we go through this about this quote. Is it still relevant today? Did Abraham Lincoln get it right? Um, You know, does this quote or statement hold water today? And by hold water, I mean my specialized patented solid water I invented that has polymorphic hydrogen bonding arrangement, creating a unique lattice structure. And I know what you're thinking. Yeah, I just made a joke about patenting ice, of which there are several patents for ice. Um, So, uh, Nigam, your thoughts on Abraham Lincoln and my ice ice patent? Um, Yeah, I would say 
probably <laughs> probably don't uh, spend money on submitting that one. Um, but you know, to the Lincoln thing, I I really can only agree with him. I I think that's the whole point. And uh, just to loop back on what I had mentioned before, I think it's a good time to share. Uh, some of the different types of patents that are kind of pertinent in the the space that we're all working in. So there's utility patents, which are the most common. They cover any process, machine, uh, manufacture, or composition of matter. There's also design patents, which are for ornamental or aesthetic features. So this could be like for an article of clothing or for like an external component of a car or something like that. And um, pertinent in the, in the cannabis space and in the psychedelic space to the extent that we are dealing with plants, that there are specifically plant patents that cover asexually reproduced plants um, that are produced by other means than from seeds. So this can be root cutting, layering, grafting, uh, and so forth. So um it's just pretty interesting, like the different types and then for inventors and, and people seeking to utilize these to think about which type or avenue they might pursue. You know, thank you, Nigam. I think that the aspect of plant patents is an interesting one. And um, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see how that changes over time because, you know, fungi are, are not plants. So I, we'll, we That's might create I... a, a patent for each kingdom in, in the tree of life there. We'll uh, get it across <laughs> eventually to the community. Excellent. Um, so Amber, uh, your thoughts, uh, tell us something you learned about patents from this article. Oh, well, my understanding of patents are there a, a portion of this larger umbrella that we call intellectual property and I, or IP, um, and IP is this larger term for legal rights that are attached to inventions or, or thoughts, original thoughts that you can come up with yourself. Um, and this includes confidential information, artistic expressions, branding. Um, I don't probably understand nearly as much about IP as I maybe should at this point in my scientific <laughs> career. Um, but I do know that it it covers, you know, not just patents, but trade secrets, copyrights, trademarks. Um, and I'm, you know, not familiar with like the differences between all of those, like vaguely to some to some degree. Um, but but IP itself focuses on the products of the mind um, and and ideas more so than physical objects. Interesting, interesting. Um, thank you. So, uh, Dr. Ward, uh, you know, please share with the group something you learned about patents uh, recently. Yeah. Uh, so, just a couple of things that I've thought about reading the article and then also uh, listening to you guys talking about the topic is uh, the question of how important it is to demonstrate that something is one novel and how challenging that can be. And really, I think more important is the burden of proof to demonstrate that that novelty has usefulness. So I, I'm I'm interested in the thought that really these two things need to both coexist for something I believe to be appropriately patented, and I think that uh, this article touches upon that nicely. And then the the newest piece and one of the biggest focuses of the article was that how important it is that the patent reviewers um, understand <laughs> uh, what is novel in a field and what is 
useful. And, you know, perhaps the most thought-provoking part of this article for me was discussing how difficult it is to find the prior art in the psychedelic space and that potentially this creates maybe a new profession for folks that are looking for uh, ways to get into this space from all different types of fields, um, you know, perhaps a combination of law and science, for example. Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. And and that's something, you know, Nick and I have discussed, um, you know, around the office table is like, should one of us become a patent agent? Because there's like, but then I, and then I feel like you could just get like a grad student, give them like a two liter bottle of Pepsi and be like, here, prove this patent wrong on a Sunday afternoon, like, um, or, or whatever it's called. So there's this term, quote, bad patent, um, that's used to describe those patents that make overly broad claims are not true innovations or are filled strictly with the intention of scooping up intellectual property rights, sort of being an enemy of innovation. So sometimes they're used to protect innovation. They can be also used as a way to inhibit it. And, and this article by Lauren Wilson dives into it. And she also discusses a solution that experts in the space are funding to help sort of navigate these troubled waters of psychedelic patents. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and one of the things I wanted to talk about um, as, as we transition a little bit is that this article from Lucid News, you know, highlights that the, there's this huge growth in the psychedelics industry, and it's accompanied by all these ethical and legal and social implications of patenting all these psychedelic compounds. And it's becoming important and, and even clear that the inaccessibility of information is is part of the problem. Um, you know, not a lot of people know that in the '60s there were tens of thousands of people who were like administered psychedelics um, in clinical settings. There was a lot of that going on. And a lot of that information is not freely available, for example. Um, we've seen examples of patents that have entire texts from research papers like copied and pasted in them. Um, so when it comes to um, this, what, what people are looking for is something called prior art. And prior art's a term for the body of knowledge um, in patent law. So when it comes to history, science, and culture of psychedelics, prior art is not well-known or apparently easily accessed by patent reviewers who apparently do not have access to your basic internet browser. So, because if you put in like psychedelics for antidepressants, you find a lot of information. Psychedelics for alcoholism, you'd find a lot of information. I mean, uh, so, so it can be difficult. But historically, there's bad patents that are given out to every industry. And I just want to share a few because this is not unique to psychedelics or cannabis or, or drugs of abuse. But the Washington Post has an article uh, put out in 2015 about the worst patents. There's the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which have a stupid patent of the month club. Um, for example, here's one from 2015. It was a patent for connecting something, anything to the internet. Um, in 1995, a patent was granted for using a method for a method of using a laser pointer and having a cat chase it. So I've definitely been in violation of that for a number of years in my life. Um, there's also a method for swinging on a swing and also the patenting of a stick, which is, um, you know, any number of materials, rubber, plastic, or wood. So I want to just go around and ask some of my panelists, um, what are some of the noxious patents in your field? So, um, you know, so, so Amber, I don't know if you could just share a, a short example. You know, you've worked in the cannabis space uh, a lot. I'm sure you've maybe come across one or two things that were head scratching. 
Uh, well, the first one that comes to mind, there's a, there's a handful, but I'll try to keep it short, uh, is this so-called Biotech Institute, LLC. It's patent uh, number 9095554, entitled Breeding, Production, and Use of Specialty Cannabis. And again, it seems that most people growing uh, cannabis in the United States could potentially be in violation of this patent. Um, it basically, in general terms, covers... Uh, a single variety of cannabis uh, that is greater than 3% in CBD and does not have mercine as the dominant terpene. Um, as like a, no, there's some more details in there, but essentially, you know, how can you patent a plant that's been growing in these uh, types of, with, with this type of molecular profile for thousands of years, arguably. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's one that sticks in my mind and, you know, is it enforceable? If it is, it's clearly not being enforced. I, I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, thanks, Amber. Yeah. Why stop there at penting nearly every current and future variety of cannabis? I mean, there's clearly no prior art of cannabis being grown for thousands of years. Um, you know, this reminds me of my patent I'm trying to get through for being an idiot. It's a very particular method. Um, and I want to sue people for being idiots. But, you know, I'm going to be ethical about this. All we will leave free licenses in the public space for being a moron. It's really drawing a line at being an idiot is my IP. So, um, Sarah, I wanted to know if you're able to find any, you know, did anything jump out at you about silly psychedelic or drug patents um, and, and that sort of area? Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued by, by your patent, Jehan. Um, whether or not it's novel, uh, you and I have known each other for a very long time. So I would say your certain brand of idiocy may be uh, highly novel. Um, however, thank you. Does it offer utility to society? Is <laughs> is the important question. <laughs> I would argue yes, and I think the listeners by now would probably agree. Uh, but yeah, bad patents. Uh, you know, I think. Again, just I, I don't have any particular examples, but again, um, as Amber said, you know, I'm also in the cannabis space and a lot, I think, of the examples of bad patents have to do with how novel and how useful. So, you know, patents that are what we refer to as patenting of me too drugs. So something that is, you know, very similar. Somebody tweaks a molecule a little bit. Okay, that is now novel, but is there enough of a burden to demonstrate that that is useful? You know, so what? You can you can change that a little bit, but what is the point of of uh, patenting that that novel structure? Um, so there's a lot of I think examples of this in the cannabis space. Uh, one example might be hydrogenated cannabinoids, for example, um, or drugs that are enantiomers of one another, like ketamine enantiomers, or another example being uh, polymorphs. So um, particular crystallization um, of of a of a drug in one form or another in silicon. Uh, psilocybin is an example of this that can come in different polymorphs. Uh, so going back to your um, example of patenting your particular um, chemical structure of the ice in your freezer, it may be different from the ice in my freezer, uh, but is there any difference in utility at the end of the day? 
Interesting. Interesting. Um, I, I thank you, Sarah. Um, so uh, Dr. Aurora, uh, let's turn the tables to you, you know, other than bad patents being, you know, distracting and stupid and frustrating, Nigam, I kind of wanted to know what are some of the significant consequences of bad patents that, that came to mind reading this article or that, that came from, um, the article? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll just speak to uh, a few uses in the context that we're talking about. So one of them is is what you've already mentioned, Jahan, is kind of ignoring previous use. Um, so for example, there's this thing between uh, USONA and Compass about um, synthesis of psilocybin, right? So that method had been known, it had been published, it had been used, yet Compass comes in and says, we're going to patent it. And then you could, or you could think of a, in a similar vein of like indigenous use of um, certain uh, psychedelics, be that, you know, mescaline, be that psilocybin, uh, be that ibogaine, whatever. And then you have modern companies coming in to patent that um, in different processes or formulations with, with a general disregard for the prior use. And we have seen some, some interesting things about groups attempting to protect that IP in the modern context and assign ownership in that IP back to indigenous groups and, and stuff like that. So, so that's kind of interesting. The other thing that we see that I want to bring up, there was just an article in the news about this uh, a few weeks ago that actually we, we were familiar with previously uh, from a group here in California that had done they basically had this whole strategy to do like a patent land grab uh, in the psychedelic space. And their, their whole thing was not even that they were going to develop or utilize any of those technologies. Their business strategy was to patent a whole swath of potential compounds or products and then just wait for other companies to want to use that and then go enforce their patents and say, Hey, you want to sell that? You owe us a royalty or, Oh, you need to license it. From oh my us. God. That sounds annoying. <laughs> right, right, right. So it, it, it's like, um, and then where do you draw the line on the ethics? Right. Is that, th so there's this thing that we run into all the time. What can't, what is illegal versus what is unethical? Right. So nobody would say that that's illegal. I mean, that, that group, uh, had, had a major, you know, prominent IP law firm with them doing those patents. So it obviously wasn't illegal, but what are what are the ethics of that, and how does that help people on planet Earth use uh, psychedelics as medicine or as you know products for their own purposes? And I think the answer is it doesn't. It's it's just profiteering. So, um, anyways, if uh, you know, send me an email if you if you can't find this article from the way I'm talking about it. But uh, it was on Benzinga, so go look nice. on Benzinga for it. So, anyways, last thing I'll say after all that criticism is there is some, not some, there, there is value, like Lincoln was saying, in, in ethical patents. And the reason is because companies, especially smaller companies, small biotechs, they put a lot of effort and they put a lot of funding and, and their uh, investors or their funders put a lot into developing these drugs, methodologies, processes. So having that kind of safety net to get their what they put in back that that's that's the value you know yeah absolutely I mean, those are great points it's, it's it's clearly you know a balance so you know amber i want to go to you and then um we can open it up to final comments 
But, you know, Amber, um, you know, what are we supposed to do about what seems like all this money and power trying to crush innovators like roaches by patenting everything? Um, should we destroy a society and like burn down the patent office? Is this, is, is this where we've reached? Have we reached our limit with uh, so-called bad patents? I wish I had a dollar for every time I wanted to burn something down and start it over. But, <laughs> but um, that is illegal and probably unethical. <laughs> so, okay. Um, but but re- getting back to the article, it, it does share some information about this group called Porta Sophia. And this group has been providing this really needed information um, about existing you know, prior art. Um, to these reviewers, to people putting patents together, patent applications together. Uh, And so they're building this online database and searchable library of all of this different information pertaining to psychedelics. And they're trying to make it more easily accessible to the government patent office as well. Um, I mean, I have a number of questions about, you know, just calling up the patent office and offering my product (laughs) to them for for their review use. But, um, you know, hopefully this will help uh, get some more information out there about what is already available and prevents, you know, some of these bad, quote unquote, bad patent applications from being filed um, in the future. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Amber. I, I appreciate that. And thanks for talking to me down off that ledge. I was getting a little worked up reading this article. Um, so, uh, you know, we have a few minutes left in the segment, so I just want to open it up to, to final comments. Um, and then, then we'll close out the segment. So, um, just jump on in. If you got some final patented thoughts or thoughts about patenting, don't patent those thoughts before we publish this though. Yeah. I forgot to mention before Jehan, I, um, as always, you find the most uh, intriguing quotes, and I don't know how you, I think you have more than 24 hours in your day, uh, but the fact that you found a quote from Abraham Lincoln about patents, uh, <laughs> I thought that was really cool. And just to repeat the the last part of it, says the patent system changed this and thereby added the fuel of interest to the fire of genius in the discovery and production of new and useful things. And I'm interested um, in the definition or the what was the intended meaning of the word interest at the end of that statement and so was lincoln saying that patenting will add the fuel of interest meaning people will be more interested to disseminate their mm-hmm. genius and and put a patent on it or was he referring to some sort of monetary definition of the term and and it also you know so i guess Again, the, the jaded me reading this article is thinking like, um, you know, is the overarching point of patents fig- for smart people to figure out how to make money? Or is the overarching yeah. purpose of a patent to um, make new and useful things, as Lincoln said? That is so fascinating, Sarah. And yeah, I mean, here I've been giving my genius away for free. Um, and and you know, I think you're right. I think that you might be onto something there. When we think about interests, maybe, um, you know, when he was saying it, he was literally saying people are going to can get paid, can get royalties on it. I think that's a interesting thing because the first time I heard it and read it, I thought like it's it creates interest and excitement and like gravitas or you know. But but I really like that definition. So um, if, if that's going to do it for everyone's final thoughts, let's. Let's wrap up this segment and we'll be right back with Rapid Fire Science. 
Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. And we're back. Now it's time for the peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So this episode's peer-reviewed article is a clinical comparison of LSD and psilocybin published in Nature's Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology in 2022, otherwise known as this year. So before we dive in, I just want to go around uh, and quickly let's share something uh, that you know about LSD and, and psilocybin regarding their uh, potential differences. So uh, let's change it up a bit. Let's start with Amber quickly. What comes to mind when you think about LSD and psilocybin? Uh, I would say that psilocybin is naturally occurring. It grows in mushrooms mainly. LSD was originally synthetically derived um, and has since been recognized to exist in some other organisms. But generally, we think of one as being synthetic and one as being naturally occurring. Yeah, I think I think the historical evidence supports your notions there. Yeah, and that's one of the coolest things ever in biology is when people make a compound and then find it naturally occurring in the world. I think that's just that's awesome. Uh, Nigam, what comes to mind when I say LSD and psilocybin? So sounds sounds like a, a Monday at nine a.m. with you, buddy. But um, <laughs> for work, for professional purposes, obviously. Um, right. But, when I'm writing a technical document, sometimes I read Nigam the weirdest sentences. Like, what do you think about this uh, in reference to a maximum daily dose limit? <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, we we got a lot. We're we're playing with a lot of the uh, technical aspects of some of these substances. But um, anyways, back to your original question to to kind of build on what Amber was saying in this study they're talking about the pure substance that was given to someone in a clinical setting. But in both cases, in, in a less clinical setting, there's other molecules that might be at play. So there's, uh, we could call them cofactors uh, in, in, that exist naturally in the mushroom species. Or in uh, LSD, we talk about um, LSD-25 is, is the form that we think of as LSD, but there's other forms. There could be degradants. There could be a, you know, a synthetic process that wasn't completely clean or didn't go to completion. So um, I just want to point out that when we talk about psilocybin, we talk about LSD outside of the clinic, there could be other cofactors. I think that's a brilliant point, Nick. I and mean, that's why I think where that um, old stick comes uh, around about like the brown acid at Woodstock versus the, the clear, because these different isomers have different properties. And one is like probably better than the other, I'm going to guess. So and I think the same thing with like, um, you know, mushrooms, there's like norcelosin and there's other compounds there. Um, just like cannabis, right? There's THC, there's CBD, not everything um, goes in the same direction in your brain as it were. So great points. I, I love, I love it so far. So Sarah, um, <laughs> I know you're not, uh, you know, you haven't been studying psychedelics that long, but uh, share something you feel that, you know, you know about these compounds or, or, or what comes to mind when you think about LSD and psilocybin. 
Sure. So, so as the uh, resident pharmacologist, of course, my what's most interesting to me is the pharmacology of uh, hallucinogenics in general and LSD and psilocybin specifically. So they've been their pharmacology has been studied since I think back to like the 1930s. There were some interesting studies that determined that their hallucinogenic properties are probably mediated through the serotonin receptor. There's a bazillion serotonin receptor subtypes. And uh, as we mentioned in the game, it's uh, 5-HT2A that mediates the hallucinogenic effects of LSD and psilocybin and other hallucinogens. Um, two interesting tidbits. One is that LSD can also have activity on the dopamine receptor system, huh. which I think is relevant to this paper and to the potential for there to be something different experiential or side effect wise about LSD. And psilocybin actually has additional serotonergic effects outside of 5-HT2A, where it also can block the serotonin transporter, like our friends, the SSRIs that we just talked about. Uh, and lastly, all known hallucinogens bind to the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor, but not all drugs that bind to the 5-HT2A receptor are hallucinogenic, which I find Interesting. fascinating. Yeah, it is because we have natural substances in our body that stimulate that. And we might just, you know, go for a jog and start hallucinating because, you know, our body's natural compounds would stimulate it. And, and definitely, and, and, you know, you mentioned dopamine, we mentioned serotonin. So real quick, Sarah, this is my sort of, you know, writing down on my table napkin. Serotonin is a feel-good drug. And I just generally, so generally thing, you feel good, you feel bad. I, when I think of dopamine, I think of doing something that makes you feel good, like getting a reward. So serotonin is like this thing that's just kind of around, you feel good in general. And, and dopamine's like a drive. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, if you want to like calibrate my concept there, but just in general, um, would you say it's kind of an accurate concept? Yeah, I would say, I mean, again, because I've been studying dopamine for so much longer, I think, you know, the, the interesting thing about dopamine is that it's acting as an attention signal. And it's mm. often thought of as pay attention to this feel good thing. It also can say, pay attention to this feel bad thing, but really the brain uses dopamine to alert it to paying attention, make an association between this thing that you're doing and how good it feels. Uh, serotonin is much more ubiquitous. It can elevate mood. It's found everywhere in the body. It is the primary neurotransmitter that drives the gut, for example. Uh, so so serotonin is actually much more ubiquitous and involved in a lot of different things outside of mood. Fascinating. Thank you, Sarah. You know, maybe it is true what they say. There's only two things in life we really love, and that's serotonin and dopamine. So we'll, we'll come back to you uh, with a little more details about the study and the pharmacology, just to share some quick details of the study at hand. So this study was entitled Direct Comparison of the Acute Effects of Lysergic Acid Diethylamide, or LSD and psilocybin in a double-blind placebo-controlled study in healthy subjects. And this study evaluated and directly compared the acute subjective and endocrine effects of these two substances, again, using two doses of each substances and a placebo within the same subject. So the main finding seems to be 
Uh, spoiler alert, and I want to just kind of get a sense from how significant this is, but the, the main finding seems to be psilocybin increased blood pressure more than LSD, where LSD increased heart rate more than psilocybin. So as we go through uh, panelists, uh, Nigam, Sarah, Amber, you know, let me know if I got this right or wrong. Uh, but overall, it seems that the scientists involved in the study found no evidence of a qualitative difference in altered states of consciousness that were either induced by LSD or psilocybin, except that the duration of action was shorter for psilocybin. You know, I found that to be <laughs> a tough pill to swallow. Um, but, you know, before we get lost in data, let's discuss um, how the study was conducted. So, Sarah, just to jump back to you, um, you know, you've done, you've, you've published a lot of work here. I was hoping you could shed some light on the overall sort of design of the study. Did it make sense for what they're doing? What, what... Yeah. So I think, so for me, again, going back to pharmacology, you know, one, as you said, one of their big claims is that the, the difference that was observed is probably more differences in dose than in drug mm. and that low doses of psilocybin or LSD feel one way and higher doses feel another way, more so than psilocybin feels differently from LSD. Um, I'm not sure that that is super apparent in the data. I would, su I would suggest that it looked like their low dose of psilocybin was really low and their high dose of LSD was pretty high, um, <laughs> and they only had two doses of each drug. So I, I'm not saying that, that that's not perhaps correct or accurate, but I think we would probably need more data points in their graphs to really say um, that, that the, yeah, that it's more just low doses of these two hallucinogens feel one way and higher doses feel another. I will say two, two other interesting things that are interconnected. Experimental design was interesting to me um, that some of the subjects had a history of some prior use of psychedelics and some didn't. And in general, I think it was less than 10 times used over a lifetime was okay. Like you could still be in the study if you had tried LSD seven times prior in your life. Um, and the reason why I mentioned that part of it is that one of the most amazing things to me is that the patients couldn't tell the difference between what they got for the most part. Uh, they could tell a little bit that they got a low dose versus a high dose. Um, but even, as you said, even the fact that the half-life was really different. They didn't seem to be able to tell that and say, oh, these, this was like psilocybin, this was like LSD. What I think would have been more informative perhaps is a study with experienced users and mm. could they tell the difference? Um, and I think that might tap into whether the subjective effects are actually different. But in you know, in relatively naive people, the fact that they didn't seem to be able to to distinguish suggests that maybe the the conclusions of the study are right that the subjective effects aren't uh, terribly different. Yep, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you took someone who, you know, let's say they had never taken a college science final exam before, and you gave them a biochemistry exam and a organic chemistry exam, they'd be like, 
this is the same, <laughs> right? They would. Not, I would they, say that. <laughs> right. Or like some people who like drink wine and be like, it all tastes like moldy grapes to me. And other people, they have blackberry and chocolate and tobacco notes. So, so I think, yeah, there might be an experience thing. It might be an individual thing. Um, yeah. So thank you, Sarah. I really like how you dived into that. Um, so Nigam, I know you're a big numbers guy. You love talking about the end numbers in this. And I'm almost hesitant to ask, but do you think this study has enough strength to it? And what I mean by that is, is it well designed enough to offer um, a reliable speculation about the differences between LSD and psilocybin? Uh, as to not burn all my time before I say some really <laughs> interesting things, people who smoked more than 10 cigarettes a day were not allowed in the study. People who had more than 10 drinks in a week were not allowed in the study. People who had pretty much any other health condition were not allowed in the study. People who had done a lot of psychedelics more than, I think, five times in their life were not allowed in the study. Oh, here was a, a really interesting one is that cannabis was okay, but other drugs were not. So if a person said, oh, yeah, I took LSD a year ago. Oh, can't be in the study. But if they smoke weed every day, it's fine. Oh, but if you smoke cigarettes every day, it's not fine. Do you see what I'm? Do you see what I'm saying? Like I was having trouble gripping where these qualifiers came from. Um, some mm. other items uh, that I did think were really interesting. Um, here's a big one. As as a chemist, so they're saying the doses for LSD were 100 and 200 micrograms, but when you go to the study drugs section. And they talk about the analytical chemistry. The doses for LSD were 84.5 micrograms plus or minus one microgram. So their 200 microgram dose was not 200 micrograms. It was 170. And their 100 microgram dose wasn't 100. It was 85. So I don't know why they didn't write it as such. Um, hmm. So uh, the, the psilocybin ones were also off, but not as far. Interesting. Um, yeah, so you I can wonder see, if that's due to like some weird delivery thing or it's like an well, artifact of the design. But yeah, that's a... I think what it is is on the... They have their 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 substance that they were going to administer and they didn't, you know, whatever analytical test they were going to do on it. And they said, okay, here's a final value. And it, and it, and there was time to give it to the, the subject. So that was our final value, but it just, I guess what I'm highlighting is there's these little tidbits that, that all kind of add up to my summation, which I, which I already said. So um, last or, couple or more, there's a lab tech who's collected 20 micrograms off of every sample. Mm, um, but mm. you know, um, yeah. not, not pointing any fingers, pure speculation. Yeah, tw 28, you know, 28 samples and 15 micrograms missing each time. Where did that go? Um, <laughs> so a couple other ones, just short ones. Um, I did think it was really interesting that uh, they talked about. Uh, so let me say this, this is my last comment uh, for the moment. Probably the biggest strength I saw in this study was their measurement, their head to head comparison and the subsequent measurement of physiological aspects, heart rate, blood pressure, all that kind of stuff. That I thought was the best part. And the thing that I thought was interesting, uh, and Jehan, we've talked a lot about before, like on our old Clubhouse show and with our colleague Del Potter, about uh, BDNF and the impact that taking psychedelics has on BDNF levels and then 
what impact that has on neuronal activity and overcoming trauma and all this other mental health stuff. And in their study, they're saying that in no case of all these different things they did, 15 milligrams psilocybin, 30 milligrams psilocybin, 100 micrograms LSD, 200 micrograms LSD in 28 different patients, and they all got every treatment, nobody's BDNF went up. So that was interesting. Right, because that seems to be a mainstay of the animal research. Like We hear that all the time. And, and, and we've, t- we've, we've I feel like we've talked about a dozen studies that demonstrate it. Yeah. So yeah. Hmm, so I guess, yeah. So, and I'm getting redundant here. I could probably say another tidbit or two, but my summation is there is, there's uh, a significant amount to be desired in this study for me to say, yeah, those outcomes inform my thinking about LSD or psilocybin or their uses. Uh, understood. Understood. All right. Well, great points, Nagam. I like the the dissection of, of this clinical study. So, Amber, um, as we dive deeper and deeper, I hope you have some uh, deep thoughts um, on this article to share. Uh, yeah, I have a couple thoughts. I, I think I'd, I'm going to start responding to Nigam's questions about cigarette smoking. And I mean, so my understanding of this study design was you had to take um you know, you had to go to a clinic, you had to take these surveys every 30 minutes, maybe. Um, I mean, there's no time to smoke 10 cigarettes. Um, if they're like measuring your blood pressure, heart rate, you're taking surveys for 24 hours straight. Um, I think they just sort of for logistical purposes, <laughs> um, right. can't do both at the same time. Um, uh, but that's, that's, a just, great, that's, a that's a great point, Amber, because I could just vision right now, like some guy being like, I'm just going to go out for a quick cigarette. And they're like three hours later, where'd that guy go? Yeah. <laughs> Um, And the same thing with cannabis use, I'm wondering if we understand enough about the mechanisms of action that it's not necessarily interfering with the pathways of these psychedelics. I don't know. Those are just some thoughts I had while you were pontificating about the exclusion criteria there. But um, I don't know, there's a couple of things that also jumped out at me. There's a statement that just says no severe adverse events were observed. And as Sarah mentioned, there's pretty high dose of LSD there at the, I guess, 170 microgram level, not 200. Um, And so, you know, that's a a good commentary on relative safety of of these types of applications. Um, And I was a little less critical, I think, of Nigam of this article in that it's filling in some really basic things that we don't have out there in the public. What is what do these things do to your heart rate and your blood pressure? I mean, you know, if you're experiencing it, you can tell that there's a difference. But, you know, how do you quantify that without measuring it? Um, You know, just some basic stuff that is now out there in the publicly accessible arena that wasn't a couple of months ago. Um, And so, yeah, there's probably a lot of room for improvement for study design. But, you know, I think, we, you know, we can have these conversations about everything that gets published. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm an advocate of just getting this information out there. Um, and I think I'll leave it at, at that. There's, there's some small differences here and there between, you know, high dose of this and low dose of that. But I think at the end of the day, you know, they were really just measuring these uh, feelings, both subjective and, and objective, and not necessarily any application for treatment. So it's just some, you know, relatively useful data, I think, that's out there now. I love it. I love the spicy discourse. All right, settle down, you two. Um, so thank you, Amber. I'm going I'm to open it up to any other kind of final comments or discussions as we wrap this up as we're running short on HLI time. I think 
we've done a great job talking about our perspectives on dosing in this study, um, you know, about the experience or history of drug use and how that plays a role. It's such a huge factor that we just kind of seem to sometimes willy nilly have in a study or not have in a study, you know, um, you know, and, and some questions I think about is like, should, maybe they should have dosed by body mass to, you know, control this a little bit more. Um, I think, um, you know, we, we've talked a little bit, Nigam, I mean, you definitely reflected on, does this reflect the real world with your comments about all the different versions of LSD and like when you're taking a, a, or, or an organic product. And what I mean, that is like a plant product or fungal product that has a psychedelic in it. You're taking it with everything else, not just the, the main ingredient. Um, so, you know, should they have had an arm that was like a psychedelic drug concoction that reflected what's out in the street or what have you? Um, and I wonder about how this study might be used for policy, healthcare, or public health, or even for some drug development research. There might be someone reading this or listening to this thinking, oh, well, there's no difference. Let's just use either one. Let's mix them up and administer it, them. That, that's, yeah, that, that's, I, I agree with what you're saying, Jehan. And I just want to, and I also, Amber, I want to agree with what you said about the basic, like, physiological metrics. I, I totally agree with that. I don't disagree. I just want to read this sentence that I highlighted from this article. I'm just going to get ready. I'm going to read a sentence and then I'm going to ask a question to the group. If I can borrow the moderator hat for one second, Jayhan. So here we go. These findings further support the view that alterations of states of consciousness that are induced by LSD and psilocybin are more likely dose dependent rather than substance dependent and that the difference in their pharmacological profiles do not relevantly influence subjectively experienced effects. Hmm. Okay, so that's a sentence. Here's my question. So there's trials going on for um, psilocybin for, you know, uh, smoking cessation at Johns Hopkins. They're LSD for uh, alcoholism uh, uh, in many other conditions, right? So my question is, can you just flip-flop those can you just trade lsd for psilocybin in those trials that sounds like a great website um to set I, up i don't know a, i think but uh, i think yeah. the the conclu- yeah. i'm just hammering the same thing but the no, conclusion is like point. it's it's um it just doesn't sit well with me i don't i don't know how else to say it you know yeah, I think that that's a good question because we, when we look around like just the United States, and if you want to get a psychedelic assisted therapy session, um, they offer a couple things. I, I don't know actually of sanctioned LSD psychotherapy yeah. sessions that are pronounced as getting a psilocybin one, right? Like, <laughs> I think those are fairly like commercialized in a very minimal sense. There are a lot of psychiatrists in the US that you can go through this process of get taking psilocybin and also MDMA to, to a limited degree as well, or otherwise known as ecstasy. So I feel like, um, it, it's always interesting when like one drug is it, their differences on the subjective effects on consciousness seem to be, you know, hard to differentiate between But one's great at treating cigarette sensation. Another one's great at treating alcoholism. Another one's great at trauma. So sometimes I think that that's a, is a fascinating aspect of it. I could be like, maybe, this is true. And maybe the answer is that in those ongoing trials, maybe you can substitute them and maybe it's fine. Maybe it's simply the stimulation of 5-HT2A. But then back to Sarah's thing, like what is dopamine doing? I, I just, 
my my belief is that that's not true, but I guess I'm recognizing my belief could be wrong, I guess. <laughs> and you're having a hard time with that. Yes. Yes. Thank you for recognizing. <laughs> so one, one quick thing that I wanted to add, and I think this is a, I believe it's a misconception that people fall into often is that we don't know. And I know I've said this many times in this show, we don't know whether the subjective effects have anything to do with the therapeutic mechanism of action. So they're actually two separate questions. So, you know, I think Nigam, you're I I agree that I'm not sure that the results fully support the conclusion that the subjective effects are more dose than drug related. But I certainly don't think that that goes anywhere to demonstrate or suggest that the mechanism underlying their therapeutic effects is similar. Um, there are a lot of drugs that have similar subjective effects and different therapeutic effects. There are drugs that produce a subjective effect through a mechanism that has nothing to do uh, <laughs> with their therapy. And you, as you wow. all know, I mean, that's that's something I'm so interested. Like, do I have to hallucinate to get a therapeutic effect from these compounds? I am just a thousand percent fascinated with that question. And I, and I don't think we know the answer and, and research like this will get us closer. Uh, I, I love that, Sarah. And that is such a, such an interesting idea because you can further say, well, maybe for some therapeutic effects, you need those psychological effects the hallucinations and, and to work through that. And other times it might actually not be great uh, for the particular therapy. So I think that that is, is I just love the insight that you bring to the show um, to help us when our heads are about to explode from talking about this. Um, so I'm going to just say uh, going once, going twice for final comments. Um, everyone seems rather complete. So that's going to wrap our show today. I want to thank everyone for listening in whatever format you're accessing us with all the podcasts out there. We appreciate your time and that you're sharing this with other folks you think would be interested in our topic. So again, please rate and share our episodes. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo, who edits and mixes the show as well as all the cover artists. We appreciate you. And thank you for, to uh, Marco and Aurora, the main sponsors of the podcast. And be sure to check out our episode art show notes in the podcast description, as well as our website, howtolaunchinindustry.com, where you can drop us a line.